Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. In bond markets, very much front and center here as yields plunge to record lows, particularly in the longer-term debt world. You see uh, both the U.S. and Germany reaching those all-time lows. So there is one person for us to speak with uh, when it comes to bond yields. Priya Misra. She, she has ice in her veins. She's just, you know, she's just cool, calm, and collected. Priya Misra absolutely is cool, calm, and collected. So I want to get a cool, calm, and collected view of what's going on. Priya Misra, TD Securities Head of Global Rate Strategy. Priya, love having you on today on this bond bond-focused morning. How would you frame what we're seeing today in bond markets? Sure, and thanks for having me on. A little hard to be cool and connected when all my yield curve signals are suggesting a recession is very likely or greater than 50% chance in the next 12 months. But, you know, really, it's been a perfect storm for the Treasury market. You've had global growth being weak, and that's brought global bond deals lower. So there is this duration gap grab. But I think we have to look at, you know, the underlying data and manufacturing in the U.S. looks very weak. We've been of the camp that if manufacturing is this weak, U.S. business investment is weak, it is going to filter through into uh, the non-manufacturing or the services sector. And so we've been actually pretty nervous about growth. So you've had this, I think, filtering through as the U.S. data is looking a little not great. Um, and, you know, services looking okay, but it is yeah. a lagging indicator. And then I have to add the Fed. I think the Fed continuing to call this a mid-cycle adjustment, that's a problem for the market. I mean, when was the last time the Fed eased rates, which they did two weeks ago, and the yield curve continued to flatten? So the bond market's telling you that the Fed's behind the curve and really needs to do more than a mid-cycle adjustment. So Priya, this is the word of the day, and that is recession. Everyone is looking at what's going on in bond markets. They're saying recession. When? When are we going to see recession? Right, that's a trillion-dollar question. So, you know, we've got many models for recessions. If you look at uh, any econometric model looking at U.S. data, it actually does not signal a recession anytime in the near future. The problem is it is backward-looking data, and we are in unprecedented times. I mean, for the global economy to be this weak and for the trade headwinds to be this weak, I'm putting lower weight in the econometric models. Then I look at the yield curve. The yield curve tends to, it's a wide range, but when the two cents curve inverts or after the three-month tenure inverts, which has been inverted since March, it could be anywhere from six months to 18 months. So it's a wide range. We're thinking somewhere in the nine to 12 months range. Yeah. How close are we to an emergency meeting? I mean, there's any number of ways of looking at this. Pri, I know you're not going to talk about another bank. Deutsche Bank has broken down from a 614 to a 6.10 euro equity share of 599 on, on uh, Deutsche Bank, Priya, I would guess is really not good. Commerce Bank to record low, et cetera, et cetera. What's it take in your study of history in the bond market to make a central bank move intra-meeting? Normally, you need significant tightening in financial conditions. So we've seen this, for example, um, in 98 after LTCM was impacted. I would also say you need a U.S. shock. So Lehman goes down and they do come in right away. I mean, if you look at broader financial conditions, and again, I'm on the road, but I don't think we're down more than 4 or 5% on the S&P from the highs. So financial conditions have not tightened enough. And so I think the Fed is going to say, look, we'll do what we can 
and as the data um, you know comes in we will respond but an emergency yeah. move i think needs the s&p down 10 15% from here Okay, well, there's the statistic, folks, from Premise. I'm just suggesting, Lisa, the immediacy that you and I see on our Bloomberg screen is extraordinary for any given August. And then there's a question. Priya Misra saying that the U.S. may enter a recession in the next 9 to 12 months based on your analysis of it. Can the Fed stop that? If the Fed came out and said, we're holding an emergency meeting and we're cutting rates by 75 basis points. That's a great question. It's one of the reasons we've been looking for cuts next year as well. I mean, we have 75 basis points uh, penciled in for this year in terms of Fed cuts, and then another 75. And this is where I've been getting pushback. And my point has been, look, what can Fed rate cuts do? I mean, can, the, can they boost up housing at this point? If the problem is global growth and um, business investment being weak due to trade uncertainty, I don't think some rate cuts actually work, which is why the Fed, I think, will be forced to cut a lot more. Right now, low 30-year yield, 2.0173%, the lowest on record. How low would that we're go? Now, wait, we're now on a 199 watch. I mean, with the, the gamma that we've got to two, Lisa, I mean, continue, but we're on a 199 watch at a 30-year bond. It is a 199 watch morning uh, here in the surveillance studio. So, Priya, how low could we go here? It's very hard to put a number on it. I would say right now, the long end is the only place that hedges you against risk assets. So given where risk assets are right now, we're not that low. From We're not even you know 10% down from the highs. I think that the long end has a lot more room to decline. Now, if stocks are significantly lower than you expect an emergency move, you know that can provide some sort of a floor on, on 30-year yields. The other thing I would point to is look at global rates. I mean, look at where German 30-year is. So I think a lot of what people thought that it can't go much lower, all those um, you know, theories have been thrown out the window mm-hmm. with the Bund market. <clears throat> so I think it's got a lot more room because it is the only safe haven. I think people who have been hiding out in bills because they're right. giving you a higher yield will need to move out the curve. Let me do a speed data check right now. Futures deteriorate, negative 41. Dow futures, negative 384. Uh, the VIX, 2.80 points, 20.32. The yield from the 30-year, 202. 10-year, 157. In a huge 13 basis points with inversion, the twos, tens, 159. Lisa. Priya, what's the playbook here? Is it just to buy duration, to buy 30-year bonds uh, across the board as much as you possibly can and yield flatteners? Yes. I, I think the yield curve steepening trade is behind us. We really need the Fed to come out and say that they are willing to go all the way to zero and that this could be the start of a lengthy uh, easing cycle okay. for that front end to move. So it is about the long but end. But the distinction, also- Priya, this is really important. I don't mean to interrupt, but this is really, 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 really important. The Fed has to go to zero. Do they need to wait for single digit uh, 1% or sub 1% GDP? Or can they affect that policy given a better trailing GDP? Right. And now the Fed has been creative. I have to say, earlier this year, the Fed came out and said, you know, when we're close to the zero lower bound, we should be preemptive. And that's when they, that's one of the reasons why they eased two weeks ago. Now they need to come out and say, you know, we've been pitching this and selling this as insurance cuts and mid-cycle adjustments. We should be willing to go more. I don't, a lot of focus on Jackson Hole. I don't think this is the place where they give that signal. But, you know, if S&P is down 10%, 15% between now and Jackson Hole in a week, I Wait. wonder if we get that message from the Fed. They're just, willing to do more. That's where you're... Are you, Lisa, are you going to Jackson Hole? 
Are you sending me? I, you should go. I mean, Great. absolutely. It's beautiful there. I would it, love to it, go. It's really cool. Priya, thank you. This has been wonderful. Priya Mizratiti uh, Securities. Lisa, why don't you bring in Ms. Calvacina, who um, I think was medicated to get through this this morning with futures negative 44. <laughs> Lori Calvacina, I'm so glad you're able to join us because really yes. the key question this morning is, are U.S. equities too sanguine about the backdrop here? Lori Calvacina is head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. So Lori, are you expecting uh, equities to turn uh, a little bit lower here? Hi, Lisa. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Um, Lisa, I think the answer to your question is yes. Um, we, we really do feel like we're, we're kind of where we deserve to be at year end, but in the interim, we think there's more pain to come in the market. And I think, you know, even if you just look back at how markets have traded off big recovery lows, uh, you know, sort of 2010, 20, uh, you know, sort of back around the 9-11 lows, we do tend to have these periods of consolidation. So just at a minimum, we've been due for one of those. Um, but, but I do think that yesterday's trading action was really puzzling. I don't think the announcement from uh, the Trump administration on delaying some, and I stress some of these tariffs to December, I think it was maybe not quite much ado about nothing, but much ado about a little. Well, Lori, that raises a really important question. Who's trading? Who's trading on these headlines? It's not our clients. I mean, we, we, we heard actually that people in, in particular on the retail stocks were a little bit better to sell until the end of yesterday. Um, I do know that I talked to a lot of clients who are really just kind of pulling things in, going neutral on their sector bets, still trying to look yeah. for, for individual names that they like. But I do think there is just a tremendous amount of yeah. frustration on how to deal with these tweets. Lori, let me cut to the chase. And Abramowitz demands that I do Fibonacci's today. From the president's announcement yesterday, let's call it the capitulation or the partial cave in whatever we went on futures this is spx up a lot and we've now brought in well over 80 percent of that we've retraced 80 percent of that good news green on the screen yesterday Lori, what is the significance if we break through the low seen yesterday at 527 a.m I think it. I think it is. I think it is very significant. I think the reason why we sort of had a nice pop and then didn't really do much yesterday is that there's there's not really that much to do on this news. I think what we've done is shore up earnings expectations a little bit for the second half of the year. Um, but really, the core issue with this trade war is how it is affecting business confidence, how that is affecting capex, how that is affecting hiring. Ultimately, if hiring is affected, that will affect the consumer regardless of what's okay. going on with these tariffs and and business confidence. Not Nothing was done yesterday to fix Okay, well, give us an update. I mean, I know you're not in speaking terms with Tom Purcelli, but what is your run rate GDP that you're working with as an equity strategist? So what we did is we actually, for our 2020 earnings growth expectation, we decided to be very conservative, and we plugged in 1.8% in real terms. And that's basically, if you, if you pull it up on the Bloomberg terminal, that's basically where the sell-side consensus is for next year's GDP. So we're factoring in a sluggish earnings, our, our sluggish growth environment. It's a sluggish revenue backdrop for, for earnings. Now, the significance of that is, number one, it brings in our 2020 earnings growth 
consumption to about 5%. That's about half of what the sell-side bottom-up consensus is anticipating. Street numbers are running at 10% on earnings growth. We think they need to be cut in half if that GDP number is right. The other thing you have to consider is that sluggish GDP in something like one, you know, slightly below 2%, it is historically a very consistent trouble spot for equity markets. About two-thirds of the time, markets have been flat or down if you've had GDP in that 1% to 2% type range. Lori Calvacino. Lori, thank you so much. So good. It's, She's it's so good. Really good. I mean, a really good update. This is the interview of the day for all of you of Global Wall Street on China. And I don't mean Hong Kong, but I mean the border. I'm as guilty as anyone. I've been honored to speak to Dr. Roach of Yale University about this. If I say I went to China, I land at the airport. I always get in some big fancy Mercedes I can't afford. They take me to the Mandarin Hotel. I wander the office to see Yvonne Mann. Then I go back to the hotel. Then I get back in the Mercedes and go back to the hotel and go back to the airport and say I've been to China. George Friedman has been to China. He's with Geopolitical Futures, and we're honored to have him on today. George, you are riveted on the dynamics of President Xi and the modern experiment that is the Communist Party. Where does he want to lead them? Well, the first thing he wants to do is hold the country together. 2008 was a rattling experience. China is an export addict, and its customers stopped buying, or at least not buying as much as they did. The country is divided between the part you visit, the coastal region, which going through there you can think you're anywhere western country, and the interior, which is enormously poor. That's where Mao Zedong went to raise his army to come back to the coast and clear them out. So the real question here is, can Xi hold the country together? He's a dictator, and they didn't elect a dictator. They could put a dictator in charge and give him all this power because they were feeling comfortable. They did it because they were worried. They're worried, and within it is the Hong Kong. Henry Olson in the Washington Post talking of the protesters wanting to develop a third Chinese, a Hong Kong Chinese, off the Han and Mandarin experience. How does President Xi see that? How does he see the culture of China that folds into the military power in the sense of dictatorship? The People's Liberation Army has always been a domestic group. It fought in Korea, didn't do well. But the People's Liberation Army is a domestic security organization. It is the guarantee that the Communist Party will stay in power. He doesn't want to use it. Uh, Obviously, he wants everybody to be happy. What frightens him about Hong Kong is not only the vigor, but two other things. First, the failure of Chinese intelligence, domestic intelligence, to detect that this was going to happen as a result of his actions on um, criminal law, and uh, the fear that it's going to spread into China. We tend to look at China as an enormous uh, success. Well, like all countries, they go up and down, and they come in trouble, and when they get into trouble, the more important thing than the economic is the political. How will people respond? And this is what the Chinese are extremely worried about from Hong Kong that it'll spread. 
How do you respond, folks, if you're just joining us, uh, George Friedman of Geopolitical Futures here. I just can't say enough uh, about his work on the linkage of defense to society. They have a Type 15 tank, a ZTQ tank. I don't know if that's lined up as a light tank on the border, et cetera. But how do you respond to what I'm going to editorialize as the fear-mongering of green trucks in military at the border 15 miles from the Central District? Well, they're desperately trying to intimidate demonstrators. They want them to go home. They want them to go away, and they don't want this crisis. Uh, they can come in and crush the demonstrators whenever they want. They don't need the fancy material. They can just do it. But the fear is, one, what it will do to its international image. Uh, it has tried to portray itself as a symbol of modernization uh, to be emulated, they do this, and it loses that capability. And secondly, as with Tiananmen Square, how the rest of China responds. The real problem that Xi has, Please. he was brought in to solve these problems. He can't solve any of them. He hasn't solved the economic problem. He didn't manage Trump. He hasn't made any progress in the South China Sea. Uh, the One Belt, One Road initiative has kind of fallen apart. How fragile, George, is he in the time we've got left? Elizabeth Economy at CFR is very big on this. We look at the media and the Western world as a communist party as monolithic. It's not. I get that. But how fragile is his tenure as a supreme leader of this communist party? Well, if he winds up losing Hong Kong, on top of very bad news out of the, the Chinese economy, which is probably worse than the news that they releases, uh, there are going to be some very serious questions about whether or not this is the direction they want to take. And if he cracks down too hard, they're going to ask that question. And his most important job is handling his biggest customer, the United States. And he's failed. So I would have to think that inside the Central Committee, very quietly, Mm -hmm. There is discussion of uh, what's going to happen, and I think he's nervous, and I think that'll wind up resulting well, in him going into Hong Kong. George, thank you so much for being with us, particularly early, early in your Austin, Texas morning, uh, uh, three or four hours ago. We really hope to speak to you through the week and into this, uh, into the August as well. George Friedman, of course, founder and chairman, Geopolitical Futures, and just a, a riveting piece. Again, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. We have the Friedman literature. You can get it from Geopolitical uh, Futures. In a bit here, we're actually going to talk about Cathay Pacific and what all of this means to global travel, the protests in Hong Kong and what we observed. We have the number one guy in the world on how we're all addicted to those charge cards. Right now, we get frequent Fricks Income Miles with Ira Jersey of Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, what's the correlation right now of your bond market with the equity market? Yeah, so the, the correlation's uh, negative right now. So, you know, equities go down and uh, fixed income prices go up. Um, you know, this is a lot different from June. So, in June, uh, it was basically the, the lower yields and, and the yields going lower because the Fed was going to be more accommodative and, you know, data was, wasn't great, but it also wasn't terrible. That helped equity markets go up. But now what's happened over the last 
five weeks or so is you've seen that turn the other way where, um, you know, bad news is bad and you, yeah. know, you wind up having to flight the quality into uh, rates from uh, right. other asset classes. Is, is you know, math guy, and this is out of reason for Bose, I was talking to one of our young troops here yesterday, Ira, I didn't notice that the classic Fabozzi is 1,048 pages. I quoted yeah. that in the discussion I was having. In the Fabozzi, the dynamics of yield are different than the dynamics of price. This is a great mystery to people. Right now, I would suggest it's price up. What's the buying frenzy that you observe at Bloomberg Intelligence? Yeah, it's it's all about sentiment. So the the sentiment because of of the seeming higher risks out there, and that's causing this fight the quality into uh, into Treasuries and other government bonds. And, and interestingly, you know, and this is not something new, but the the fact is is that the U.S. government yields are still higher than the yields in most other developed government bond markets. So um, you know, even even the U.K., which also has positive yields, right? They're one of the few European countries that does. Thirty-year mm-hmm. um, yields there are are one percent. Right. Uh, Thirty-year yields here are two percent. So we still have um, significantly higher yields. And if the dollar is going to keep on appreciating because our economy is doing better than everyone else, then this is the place to be. You want to be here, maybe right. on an unhedged basis. Uh, Deutsche Bank. This is important. A headline. This is aside from Ira Jersey, but I got to go to this Ira. It's so important for our global Wall Street audience. I'm getting the headline up uh, right now. Deutsche Bank chairman Ackleitner searching for his successor is the headline. I'm looking at a 6.14 euros per share. And if I can get over to the ADR, uh, it'd be help if I knew the symbol. David Wilson, where are you when I need you? Uh, The Deutsche Bank. Oh, I'm killing. Folks, I'm just killing this today. D-E-U-T-S-C-H-E Bank. There's 4,000 people just in New York, Ira. I don't know where the ADR is on Deutsche Bank itself. That's all you need to know. Negative 386 on the Dow. Ira, what's credit doing? Link full faith in credit with the credit risk, the investment grade market, and the high yield market. How do they link in this crisis? Yeah, so uh, so you've seen spreads widen somewhat, but there's still you know a lot of people are not particularly worried about um, you know corporate credit um, <clears throat> defaults at the moment because balance sheets, particularly for large U.S. corporations that make up the investment grade market, have um, you know still are uh, still look okay. So it's not a fundamental story. It's more it is more more sentiment. Yeah. So so you have seen spreads widen significantly since late July, but they've actually stabilized here over the last. Right. Week now, I, I suspect that if you keep on getting the uh, drawdown in, in equity prices, that spreads right. will probably widen a little further. But um, it, it is one of the places that we ha- have been hearing anecdotally that there's still demand, just because you do pick up that incremental yeah. yield. Ira Jersey, too short of a visit. Stay with us and publishing today for Bloomberg Intelligence as well. We now turn to a, not a lighter topic, but off the markets, but nevertheless critical to our global audience, and that's how we move ourselves our businesses, our families around on jets. He is Brian Kelly, who single-handedly has changed how the world travels. Brian, good morning. Could you fly to Hong Kong today? Do you have confidence to book a ticket 10 days out, three weeks out, and say Cathay to Hong Kong? Yeah, you can absolutely fly today. The airport's uh, back and pretty much fully operational. They've got security outside of the terminal so that only ticketed passengers can get in. Uh, That being said, if you are booked, you can cancel for free or change up until tomorrow. But, you know, would I uh, choose to go to Hong Kong right now as a tourist? Probably not. But, uh, you know, no no tourists have been harmed in any of the protests. But 
pretty unstable time, if you ask me. What are the dynamics right now in what you helped invent, which is how we're all addicted to these charge cards with miles? The Apple card getting resoundingly negative and tepid reviews because it's really not linked to the incentives that you helped invent. I mean, does Tim Cook need an Apple card that says you get 100,000 miles if you sign up for the thing? Well, they're certainly dipping their toes into a very competitive market. Um, You know, they're I think they're going to learn a lot about credit card marketing uh, that simply buzz isn't, you know, smart consumers want value back for their spend. The Apple card has some interesting features around technology and design, but I don't, you know, I'm not rushing out to get one because, uh, you know, you basically lose money by using it by not using more lucrative cards. But Um, it's an interesting concept about, you know, no credit being pulled until you're approved and things uh, like that. uh, Brian Kelly's on all these romantic trips, folks. My trip is I use my frequent flyer miles to take the shuttle down to Philadelphia and, you know, cash them in that way. What's the dynamic of the industry right now? Clearly, every seat's taken on every plane, right? Every seat's taken a lot. You know, you can still find those saver-level awards, but you got to be a little bit more flexible. But, you know... You know, I'm flying uh, to Venice for the film festival over Labor Day. Flights were eight grand uh, on United. I, even at the peak level, I used 155,000 miles one way for business class and 10 bucks. So even when you have to use more miles, that those 155,000 miles got yeah. many cents per mile in value. So um, while you know there is a creep up in inflation in the amount of points needed, there's still tremendous value to be had. Yeah, and, and, and folks, I've seen that where the tickets have gone up. Okay, this is the number one thing I get from family members and from listeners as well. The place is packed. I can't get a business class seat. Why don't they move those little flimsy walls between business class and economy and premium economy? Why don't they just move them back and put in more business class seats? Why not? They they actually are. So a lot of airlines are getting rid of first class and putting in more business class, um, especially on the retrofitted United planes that are now flying to London. The Polaris seats are actually adding in uh, more more business class seats and better ones at that. So, yeah, I mean, we see, you know, premium economies expanding, business class is growing, first class is decreasing or going extinct altogether on some airlines. Do they make money on business class? I mean, is that where oh, all yeah, the Oh, yeah, business class is? is the bread and butter. You know, those premium passengers uh, right. pay an outsized uh, <clears throat> proportion of revenue and, and premium economy. Economy is kind of a Right. Uh, you know, can can be profitable, but fares are still really, really low right. um, globally. You know, four hundred bucks okay. we're paying to Europe. So we got to We got to end with an actual trip. Okay. Our Arya chart girl just got married in Athens. Talk about a Greek wedding. And I was going to go there, but it was four hundred thousand miles to get the thing done. Am I better going to Greece on my miles or am I better going to Denver on my miles? Which here's, is a better value? Here, here's my tip. I actually would fly Norwegian. They now fly from New York to Athens nonstop, and it's like 1400 bucks in their premium. But their premium economy is a, a big recliner seat. It's not a lie flat bed, but I fly. I'm six foot seven, and I fly it to Europe. I would save my miles uh, and fly Norwegian and, and use my miles on a, uh, right. a different trip. You're sick. How do I get to London? What's the Brian Kelly way to get back and forth to London? Ooh, you know, I use um, so I actually buy Alaska Airlines miles seventy thousand. You can buy for fourteen hundred bucks, and that's what will let you redeem for British Airways first class. You get the Concord room, which right. is uh, you know the nice way to do it. This is just sick, Brian Kelly. I hate you, uh, the points guy, reinventing and changing the travel industry. It's good to check in on him. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, 
or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.